That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. This isn't my first episode for the new year, but it's close enough. And part of the reason that I wanted to have this week's guest, Daniel Levitin, is because of some of his uh, great speaking on uh, attitude and how uh, neuroplasticity and your, your ability to change the way your brain reacts to things is actually up to you. And this is a, a relatively new thing. Back in the 70s, people thought that um, your brain was essentially static as an adult, and they're finding more and more that what used to be considered sort of hippy-dippy stuff, like positive thoughts lead to positive attitudes, uh, is 100% real. And um, I know you guys who are regular listeners have heard me talk about this a lot. So I wanted to actually have on a neuroscientist, a, a guy who's an expert in the way the brain works, to figure out um, what we can be doing to actually train ourselves to deal better with stress. If we know our triggers, how can we prepare ourselves to not fall prey to those things when they happen and to be able to deal with those stresses better? Um you know, he was uh, the neuroscientist that Peter Sagel, my wait, wait, don't tell me guest, talked about. And uh, after reading up on him, fascinating dude who has an incredible history in music and science. Um, and I think you will, after listening to this, probably be less proud of your multitasking and more likely to understand the ways in which you're self-sabotaging and preventing your brain from doing its best work. So hopefully this is a great way to start your new year with a better understanding of uh, of all of this stuff. So here's my interview with Daniel Levitin. That's what she said. Super excited for my guest this week, Daniel Levitin, who was uh, actually recommended to me via my previous guest, Peter Sagel of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is a great pod, which you should listen to if you haven't yet. Uh, Daniel's an award-winning neuroscientist, musician, author, and record producer. He has written four consecutive number one best-selling books and holds two academic appointments. He's the James McGill Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Behavioral Neuroscience at McGill University in Montreal and the founding Dean of Arts and Humanities at the Minerva Schools at KGI. And I've already told them before we even started that uh, after learning and reading so much about his history of music and the brain, we're going to have him back on again for that because that's such a fascination of mine. But this is the New Year's podcast with the intention of helping people deal with their stresses and their their attitude and their positivity and the way they function on an everyday basis, maybe in ways that um, not everyone even understands. Before we get to that, we got to figure out how you got here because I'm fascinated by somebody who graduates high school in uh, a shortened amount of time, goes to MIT to study applied mathematics, and then goes to the Berkeley College of Music and drops out to join a bunch of bands. Uh, what kind of? I mean, that's fascinating. What kind of? Uh, I guess childhood or youth did you have that all those this disparate things were all within you? I guess I guess I was immature. I, I guess I just <laughs> couldn't stick things out. <laughs> I guess right. You were multitasking, which we're yeah. Talk I was later. following. <laughs> I was following uh, multiple paths and um, not finishing any of them. That's so, that's was, one possibility. Yeah. Would Would you say that your mathematics driven brain was a natural fit to to the music side of things, though? Because you were playing multiple instruments by a very young age and composing at a young age. That feels to me like sort of the those are similar areas in terms of how your brain was working. I, you know, I don't know. Um, there, there's really no evidence in now that I'm a neuroscientist, which I wasn't <laughs> back then. Uh, I can say there's no evidence that math thinking and music thinking go together. I mean, it's, it's, it's been said, but uh, there's no scientific evidence for it. I think there are different ways of thinking. And we're often surprised when we see people who are good at both. But when you really look at it, there are people, just as many people who are bad at math and good at music and vice versa. So um, in, in my own case, I just was interested in a bunch of things. I had great teachers. I had supportive parents. And um, I was a bit socially awkward as a kid. And so I spent less time um, doing things with other kids and more time doing things by myself, like practicing alone in a room for hours on end. Yeah, so... Or doing algebra. 
Right. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, the Berklee College of Music is prestigious. You obviously had a talent there, but you dropped out to join uh, a bunch of bands and work as a producer and helped find uh, found a record label. Um, as you were doing that work, uh, was there an itch to get into understanding the brain's connection to music, or did that come later? When you were working with Blue Oyster Cult and Joni Mitchell and, and, and Steely Dan and Stevie Wonder, did you think, this is it, this is what I'm meant to do forever? Yes, I did. Um, I, I didn't have an itch to understand the brain and music at that point, although um, in my freshman year at MIT, I took two neuroscience classes, and I was fascinated by them. And I stayed in touch with those professors. And um, even after I was working in the music business, when I was in recording studios, I was um, staying up to date on, as well as I could by reading Scientific American and things like that. The, the brain always fascinated me. But um, it, there was really, it was, a, it, was a, it was the accumulation of a bunch of really weird experiences in the record business. Imagine that. Weird experiences in the record I was business. Say, I, I doubt there were very many of your compatriots at the time reading Scientific American in their off time. Oh, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, the, my friends and colleagues who were uh, in the music business with me, um, some of them were more intellectual than others. Um, some of them read extensively. Some of them didn't, just like real life, just like right. working at a bank. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, and actually, there was this one colleague of mine, Sandy Perlman, who read very widely and had um, had a voracious appetite for literature and for nonfiction. And at one point, the two of us started driving to Stanford uh, whenever we had a break in the schedule to sit in on neuroscience classes. Oh, wow. Very good. Cool. And, um, you know, Sandy and I resonated on that same wavelength and that's how I got involved with Blue Oyster Cult. He had formed the group and had been their producer and uh, written a lot of their songs, the lyrics to a lot of their songs. Hmm. So you are producing, consulting, uh, you're a sound designer, uh, you're a recording engineer, you're even appearing uh, usually on saxophone, right? In uh, yeah. yeah, performing as well. And then in your 30s, you decide... I want to go to Stanford and study cognitive psychology and cognitive science. Um, what was the ultimate turn that made you decide to go back to academia? Well, it was it was a couple of different things. It was, as I say, weird experiences in the music business. I I kept having this experience that the music that I really put my most into, that I felt um, best reflected my own artistic sensibility. That stuff tended to go nowhere. <laughs> and the, the stuff that, you know, I, I just sort of wasn't that involved with emotionally um, and sort of was doing on, um, I guess, autopilot. Right. Uh, that That's the stuff that did really well. And the music that I really liked and gravitated towards by other artists, stuff I had nothing to do with, tended not to be selling well. And so that was a weird experience because it showed me that my taste was out of sync with the taste of the buying public. And although I was making things that I liked and that the people I was working with liked, that it was a small number of people who liked it. And so it made me wonder if I could sustain a, a multi-decade career mm. if I was that far off the path. The other thing that happened was um, the record business started to implode. I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like, uh, you know, in 1981 or two, when I first started working at 415 Records, which eventually got absorbed into Sony Music, um, I think there were 17 major labels. And by the time 1990 came around and I went back to school, you know, almost 10 years later, there were maybe six major labels. There had been this consolidation and with the consolidation in the record industry came a lack of interest on the part of executives in developing new talent. Mm. You know, bands, great artists and bands like, you know, R.E.M. lost their contract. Van Morrison was let go. Elvis Costello lost his contract. Um, and so a bunch of us 
who had come into the business around the same time started thinking that the record business was going to collapse and we all ought to have a backup plan. So a friend of mine became a video uh, director. Another friend went into, became a NASCAR pit mechanic. You know, the guys that, you know, the car pulls off the track with a flat tire and they have to change the flat tire in five seconds, that kind of thing. <laughs> and I decided to go back to school and just see where it led me. I didn't stop producing. Uh, I just, just, you know, being in school took up more of my time. That's all. Right. So you started at Stanford, uh, got a BA, and then went to the University of Oregon for yes. an MSc in, and then a PhD, and then a couple postdoctoral fe- fellowships. And what did you, when you, when you became on this track where it was very clear what direction you were heading, was there anything in particular about cognitive psychology or neuroscience that was driving you, something that you wanted to learn or change or be on the forefront of? Well, it was at, at the beginning of it, it was really about trying to understand the mind, trying to understand how the mind works. How do people do the things they do? How do great musicians communicate emotion? How do they learn to play their instruments? How do mathematicians solve problems? Where do ideas come from? All of that stuff was interesting to me. Um, how is it that, um, how do visual illusions work? I used to be fascinated as a kid by books of visual illusions, you know, like the two lines that appear parallel, but they're not. Right. Or the, the two circles that one appears bigger than the other, but they're the same size. All of that fascinated me. As, uh, and so studying the brain and the mind were windows into that. And you... Early on, or, or maybe throughout, um, you're credited for changing the way people think about auditory memory. So a lot of your work, especially early on, was very much tied to music. But now you kind of are, are focused on all aspects of neuroscience, right? And the way we use our brains in everyday activities beyond just understanding music. Yeah, although I should say, uh, I, I wouldn't characterize it as all aspects of neuroscience. Um, <laughs> because the neuroscience is a big field. The annual meeting has 30,000 people at it. Right. And, and that's, that's not everybody. Um, there are, the way I see it, there are cellular-level neuroscientists and systems-level neuroscientists. And the difference is that the cellular-level people are looking at you know, one neuron at a time right. and trying to figure out how it signals its neighbor. Uh, and the systems-level people are looking at assemblies of tens of thousands of neurons at a time and trying to figure out how they communicate with other assemblies and how they store and retrieve memories and enable you to control your tongue and your lips so that your words are intelligible, all those things. And so I'm, I'm on the system side of things. I don't know that much about the cellular level. What would you say the biggest change in thinking or biggest jump in knowledge has been from when you first got into this field to now? Well, if you're talking narrowly about um, the neuroscience of music, I'd say the biggest, the biggest change in our understanding of music is that, as you said, musical memory is better than anybody thought it was. You can ask the average person on the street to sing their favorite song, and they're likely to sing it in the right key and at the right tempo to such a degree of precision that if you were to record them and then overlay their recording with the actual recording, uh, it would sound like they were singing along with the track. And in effect, they are. They've got the track encoded in their brain with great uh, high, high resolution. And I think another thing that we've learned is that um, – People who are great musicians probably don't have different brains. Really? Huh. We, we talk about whether something is a difference in kind or a difference in degree. In other words, is the difference between Ella Fitzgerald and your neighbor who took piano lessons for 10 years and then quit, is the difference that Ella's brain is so fundamentally different that there never could have been any uh, choice about how the two of them would end up. Or is it just that Ella has the same brain, but uh, you know a little more developed and, and worked at it harder? And, and it, it's really looking like effort is a much larger part of, of the story than, um, than you know, some magical module in the brain. 
Would you say there are outliers for that, though, the kind of person that's almost an idiot savant in terms of they hear a, a something once and they can perform it? Well, that certainly exists. Um, it, 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 I don't know that it means their brain is is different. It doesn't have a piece that your brain and my brain lacks, if, if you want right. to look at it that way. But, yeah, it's wired differently for sure. Right. Um, and but I mean everybody's brain is wired differently than everybody else's. <laughs> if that's a matter of degree, right. I, I think that that you know twenty years ago there might still have been um, poets or neuroscientists thinking that if you could open up the brain of a great musician, you'd find a piece in there that nobody else had. Yeah. Right, and then maybe you could design it and implant it in other people. <laughs> I I don't think that's um, the way to look at it. Taking a broader view, of course, of neuroscience in general, not just um, music neuroscience, I think the biggest development since I got into the field is is neuroimaging, the idea that we can now see uh, neuronal signaling in the brain in images in real time. We, we can't read somebody's thoughts, but we can tell with pretty good accuracy whether somebody's happy or angry. And I could probably tell whether you were listening to James Brown versus Enya. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I read a really interesting study or, or, or actually just a conversation that you had with musician David Byrne. And one of the things you talked about. Isn't how, he great? Uh, well, it was really fascinating to read. But um, and he clearly looks at music in a in an almost scientific way sometimes the way he performs. Oh, yeah. Approaches it. Very much but so. The, you talked about someone who had figured out that the sound of wood going through his buzzsaw made different levels and then was able to replicate the sound of a symphony using that and that our brains could immediately recognize it as the song, even though separately each of those were just the sound of wood in a, in a buzzsaw and how we can't have computers do that. And, it, and it's true, you know, there are all sorts of um, apps that you can use to try to tell you what song you're listening to, but it has to be the exact song. It can't be right. a cover. It can't be a different key. It can't be a different performer. And um, and so that would be fascinating to me to understand the things that you cannot make a computer do that the human brain is capable of and then trying to understand why. Is that something you've tried to get into? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, it, you know, the way you characterize it is one way that um – that some people describe the whole AI industry, artificial intelligence industry, is trying to figure out how to get computers to do stuff that they can't do, that brains can do. And, um, you know, my, my job as a professor for more than 20 years uh, found me teaching some of that, um, some of the principles of artificial intelligence and some of the examples of it. And it's good at some things. It's not good at others. It's obviously improving all the time. And um, the the pattern matching is one of the things that humans are really great at. That's that's what we're doing in the example you mentioned, being able to recognize that uh, we're hearing a song we've heard before, even though maybe every element has changed. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard people perform entire songs on a rubber chicken, and so the <laughs> fact that we can get it, is, it really says something. I you actually know, have such a rubber chicken. There you go. Um, you know, you talked about brain imaging, and that's obviously a huge part of what allowed for um, neuroscientists to understand neuroplasticity, right? And, and it wasn't an, it was in the seventies, even as recently as the seventies, that most believed that the brain's structure was essentially the same throughout adulthood. That it changed a lot in youth, and then it stayed the same. Um, and the easiest thing that I heard when I first learned about neuroplasticity was the idea that they looked at the certain part of a cab driver's brain and found it was much bigger uh, or, or more fleshed out and had more synapses and bridges and connections um, in the area where they do directional sense because they use it and use it and use it and use it. And they thought to themselves, if you can do that by reaccessing that part of the brain over and over, how else can you use that to change the way your brain functions. And for me, what was fascinating about that was the idea that we used to think it was very flower child, hippy dippy to believe that you could actually change the way you felt and thought by just thinking good thoughts. Right. Yeah. And as it turns out, it's, it's science, right? You can create synapses and bridges to get to gratitude and happiness and everything um, in ways that maybe we didn't know before. You're absolutely right. So you're, you're referring to the famous London taxi driver study. Yes. And um, the, the changes that occurred in the hippocampus 
as a result of learning their way around London. Um, in, in, a, in one sense, that's not, I mean, it, it's mind-blowing in one sense and, and tremendously surprising and great. In another sense, it's, uh, it's not that surprising in that any time you learn something, your brain changes. Um, every experience you have changes the brain because from a neuroscientific standpoint, that's what learning is. Learning is a change of brain wiring. You're wiring your brain up to understand or recognize uh, or do something you hadn't experienced before. Uh, but perhaps the extent of it is what's so surprising. And this idea that you could fix yourself into good thoughts, I mean, that's right. That's the whole basis of cognitive behavioral therapy and of meditation, that you can apply these techniques and, um, and you know, start out feeling miserable and end up feeling really good. So how do you know when to trust that something is real or fake in terms of actively changing your the way your brain like operates because right there's companies that'll say oh we can train and change your brain using these you know educational tools or whatever um or my mom i know believes that um she's read about you know she does things left-handed to stave off alzheimer's because supposedly it's challenging her brain in a way that keeps it um firing and that prevents the onset of of alzheimer's how do we oh. know how much of this stuff is real and how much of it is is you know false false claims? Well, that's that's a huge question. Um, uh, we're at a we're we're at a time in in history, I'd say, in the last I don't know eighteen months, two years to five years, uh, where it's becoming harder and harder to tell what's BS and what's not, and. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 reaching really dangerous levels. Um, the inability of the average person to apply critical thinking because they didn't learn it in school, uh, and even those who did learn to employ critical thinking, the inability to find the time to do it because there's so much BS out there. Um, that that's that's a problem, and it's it's causing ripples. We, it's it's causing problems in elections, uh, the Brexit election being an example. A, a number of, of representations were made to the British voters that turned out not to be true, but they didn't know. I remember visiting England right after the Brexit vote, and um, I was promoting my book, A Field Guide to Lies, which is which I wrote as a way to help the average person uh, engage in the very conversation you're promoting, which is, you know, how do we know? How do we know what's real and what's not? And um, I was talking to somebody about Brexit, and they said, well, we were told, I don't remember the exact numbers now, you may remember better than me, but they were told that um, being a member of the British Union was costing British citizens some enormous amount of money every week that uh, was coming out of the health system. And if only they could leave the EU their health system would be in better shape. And it turned out that wasn't true at all. And I said to uh, people that were telling me this, I said, well, where, where did you hear about that? And they said, well, it was written on the side of a municipal bus in Manchester. It was a big yeah, poster. That was the big the whole- thing. That was their big campaign was to put it everywhere using this number that had, had absolutely no proof. And in fact, has since been uh, you know, negated, yeah. refuted by every every um, reliable source that knows anything about where money goes. Uh, but the uh, the fact is, people said this. Well, it was on the side of a bus. They wouldn't let it be on a bus if it wasn't true, would they? <laughs> and then you have to ask, well, who is the they? Who's the they? bus company. The bus <laughs> company doesn't care. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe you should there should be a law that holds the bus company liable for. Not doing their due diligence. I don't know, but that's that's the same, basically the same situation. Facebook has gotten right. into where they're publishing stuff that they, you know, some people say they should have known was false. So here's uh, a, and they're here's saying, a, well, we're just like a community bulletin board. Right. Anybody with a thumbtack can put something up. It's not our right. problem. Yeah, which uh, and their their story keeps changing. But I guess there's a deep thought for you. Do you think that people's morality lies within their brain chemistry and that for some people the the positives of whatever that lie gets them override 
the bad feeling or the shame of knowing that they're they're lying or 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 tr- tricking people, and for others the chemistry is different. Or is yeah, it life it, it, well, it is that. I mean, it is it is true that um, there's sort of an arms race between the ethical and the unethical, and the people who will do anything to make a buck, and the people who are more altruistic or more worried about their reputation or about doing what's right the moral and the immoral. And I, I think it is different brain chemistry in that that's not an excuse. It doesn't mean that the people with the bad brain chemistry aren't, um, shouldn't be held accountable. Right. Um, but I mean, these are social questions, not neuroscience questions, but. Well, cause you, you don't you, see it in the brain. It's there, there are no differences in, in the brains of people who, you know, if someone is a compulsive liar or a, or a narcissist driven to lie, it doesn't show up in their brain chemistry. You know, I I don't think we know the answer to that yet. I, I think at some level there must be a difference in the brain because if it's not there, where would it be? It's not right. that the liar's got a different nose unless right, it's Pinocchio. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, it has to be in the brain. Um, and it must be different neurochemistry and different connectivity. I, I don't think that there's a different brain structure, although we have we are beginning to see evidence that people who are pathological liars or who are sociopaths um, have um, an inability to their, their brain circuits that are responsible for empathy, for example, that we have identified and Mm -hmm. a sociopath, a serial murderer or a serial cheat uh, is going to have defects in that circuit. So in a sense, we can see it. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Would you say that learning about the brain has made you more understanding of people's flaws? Because I think when we're talking specifically mental illness, right, we become more understanding of people making destructive choices or uh, struggling with depression. Um, But I would say even in understanding better just that so much of who we are is decided by, by by our natural the natural way of our brain has made me more understanding of people who tend to be negative or are are not you know naturally drawn to gratitude or happiness um, and made me feel very lucky that I am but it's also why I'm on this crusade of learning more about neuroplasticity to encourage people that they can change that about themselves if they don't want to always be negative or never be grateful. Um, have you become more understanding of people because you you know that the root cause often is not a choice? I have, I, I, but I, I, I've become more understanding and more compassionate, but I think that that was driven by a lot of things. One is being a teacher of college students uh, and realizing that they trust me and I have to honor that trust and um, I have to... Uh, take care of them. I'm 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 responsible for for some part of their lives, and um, I think part of the developing compassion comes from uh, just being older. Uh, right. As in general, as people age, they become more accepting and more compassionate. Um, that's a developmental trend, and so I'm I'm writing that, and I think. Um, Yes, understanding that the brain is really complicated and, you know, 80 billion neurons uh, connected in all these different ways. And it's sometimes not working the way it's supposed to. And people have had terrible experiences. I'm writing a book now about the aging brain and it'll be out next year. And I've been looking at the impact that early childhood trauma can have 50 and 60 years later. Mm-hmm. It's hard not to feel compassionate uh, for somebody who, who had some bad experience when they were six years old that was certainly not their fault or their doing, and that's causing them to react in maladaptive ways in their 50s. Right. So how does that play out in your everyday life? Because let's say you're in a fight with your wife or... You're in a disagreement with somebody. Um, how do you distinguish their their reaction, their their behavior from this is how they're wired versus this is a choice based on feeling, experience, context, etc. 
Well, that's a hard question to answer. I, I'm very lucky. My wife and I don't fight. We. <laughs> My wife is also a neuroscientist. Oh, boy. Wow. I can't even imagine. <laughs> and um, we've, we've just never had a fight. Um, part of it is that she's incredibly um, patient and unflappable. And mm. um, there were a couple of times in our marriage uh, when I said something that was that I, I later thought, oh, my God, I, I shouldn't have said that. It was thoughtless or it was um, abrasive. And um, I, I don't, you know, this could be the end. And so <laughs> I went and apologized to her. And and she said, oh, that? I just figured you were kidding. <laughs> you know, so that that's as close as, as the closest we've ever had to a fight. Yeah. Um, and I tend not to get into fights with people because I'm at a – uh, I'm at a point in my life where I've gotten, to be perfectly frank, I've gotten rid of the people in my life who were causing me distress. Right. And, and I'm, you know, this is also a developmental trend. When we're in our school years, we tend to have a lot of friends um, of convenience. They're the people we're in a dorm with at college or we're in classes with them or they, they're our friends from our first job. And as we approach our 60s and 70s, we tend to narrow our social circle down to the people that really make us feel good about ourselves. And we get rid of the people that make us feel crummy about ourselves. Uh, yeah. We just figure it's not, it's not worth the time. And so I, I've been lucky. I'm 61 years old now, and I've, um, I have people that I enjoy spending time with, and none of them irritate me or make me want to argue with them. You know, I, I tell people that a fair amount that I feel pretty lucky. Part of that's because I don't have an office to go into where I have to do water cooler talk, right? I work from home a lot with various producers and co-hosts and people. And and then fortunately, a lot of the people that I do work with, I really like. And then I have great family and friends. Why do you think people choose to be around people that don't make them happy or seek out uh, negative relationships or behaviors is that something that you can draw to, again, brain chemistry? Well, yeah. Um, if your template or model for what relationships are like uh, involves, you know, let's say, let's go to the obvious one, your parents. If your parents fought a lot uh, and somehow that seems normal to you, um, you'll put up with a whole different mm. bunch of stuff than if, if that it's not your childhood experience, and I mean it's not just fighting. If if one parent used to come home, you know, uh, frequently, you know, sloppy, fallen down, drunk, that's that's an experience that becomes normalized in your brain, and so you're more likely to follow that path yourself or to be accepting of it in others than if you grew up in a household with teetotalers. All these different things make a difference in brain chemistry in terms of what you find stressful right. and what you find calming. So part of the reason we end up in relationships that are not good for us is that we don't have a better model mm. or we don't, you know, there's this other notion called social comparison theory. You judge your life in comparison with the people in your social circles. Yeah. And this leads to things like, um, oh, so-and-so got a new kitchen. I, I think we should remodel the kitchen mm. <laughs> you know, because everybody we know has, has remodeled their kitchen. What, what's wrong with us? Um, or less trivial things like, um, you know, they don't have a, they don't have a good marriage. And so maybe nobody does. Yeah. You know, you mentioned, um, you know, something stressing someone out more if it's abnormal or something that they're not accustomed to. Uh, in your TED Talk, you talk a lot about the brain releasing cortisol in stressful moments and the things that you can sort of do in advance if you know you're going to be in a stressful situation or to prevent stressful situations from occurring. Before we get into some of those tips, like why does the brain release cortisol? What's the actual reason for that to happen in moments of high stress? Well, it's interesting. Cortisol is something that's um, been around in evolution for millions, tens of millions of years. And even lobsters seem to release cortisol. It's a stress hormone, and you know there are dozens and dozens of hormones in the body and the brain. And 
cortisol is associated with initiating the fight or flight response. And it's not alone in its chemical journey, but it does trigger the release of other chemicals. And the point of all that is that if you're threatened and you either need to uh, run away or fight to preserve your life, you need to uh, preserve resources that aren't necessary for either of those two activities. So, right, I mean, if, if, if you don't successfully fight or flee, you could end up dead. Hmm. And so a whole host of things that are normally being done by your body in the background, like digesting your food, um, preventing, you know, keep, keeping your, your sphincter muscle tight, um, um, keeping your libido going, none of, you know, fighting, fighting an, uh, an infection, None of those things matter if you've only got 10 minutes to survive this threatening ordeal. And the cortisol is one of several chemicals that helps initiate this response. And in evolutionary timescales, it's adaptive. You either fight the, the foe or you, you run away, and you can worry about digesting your food and uh, holding right. your sphincter later. <laughs> but uh, it hasn't evolved. If, if there is a later. Right, but it hasn't evolved to the point where the where the body knows the difference between fight or flight and just I have too much on my plate and I in your case in your TED talk I'm locked out of my house with a flight in the morning and this is going on I've got to call the the guy to fix the window I just broke to get in the house the the brain or the body doesn't understand are there ways we can actually train is it just a matter of repetition in terms of you know you send a policeman out and he or she is less stressed in a stressful situation because they've practiced those rehearsals have allowed them their body to better understand or feel comfortable in that situation is that the only way to prepare i i think there's two parts it is it, i think it is the only way to prepare and there's two parts to it one is understanding uh and the other is practicing so I think of this by analogy um, to uh, learning to fly an airplane. Hmm. In order to fly an airplane, you have to do a bunch of things that are very unnatural. I, I mean, we could talk about being a policeman and, and knowing how to shoot people and when and to shoot them and when not to. Uh, but <laughs> I think the principle is the same with flying an airplane uh, and less less violent imagery. Right. The... Um, the um, uh, in order to fly a plane successfully, you have to ignore a lot of input you're getting from your senses because it's easy to get disoriented up there. And so you're taught that regardless of what your um, sense of balance tells you, regardless of what your eyes are telling you, you have to use your gauges because uh, the gauges don't lie. And it's hundreds of hours of learning to trust the gauge. It's not that you don't trust what your eyes tell you coming off the gauge, but they, you don't trust what they tell you about where the horizon is and things like right. that, or how far you are above the ground. And in, I don't know how old you are, but in, in my lifetime, one of the big um, stories was about how John F. Kennedy Jr. died piloting his own private plane near Martha's Vineyard. Mm -hmm. And the... Um, the investigation by the FAA into the cause of the accident is that he didn't rely on his gauges. He, right. he thought that he was flying upside down based on what he saw, but at dusk where the horizon, uh, you know, where the, the sky and the ocean are hard to distinguish, he got mixed or you know, ambivalent, ambiguous cues from, from his senses and his um, sense of balance was off. And so he thought he was upside down and tried to turn the plane right side up and in so doing, put the plane into the, into the ocean. So I've noticed, and I actually spoke to a yoga teacher slash studio owner slash uh, speaker who's done a lot into mindfulness and meditation and uh, changing and, and understanding the brain. Um, and even in the time since I spoke to him months ago, I've noticed I've been able to change by what you call pre-mortem, which is yeah. the opposite of post-mortem. It's knowing in advance that you're going to be stressed. For whatever reason, my biggest frustration comes from the littlest things. I'm pretty good at big stuff. Uh, when I get thrown a curve, I get really annoyed when someone doesn't let me get off the train before they try to get on and they push me. 
I get yeah, really annoyed annoying. if I've right if I've laid out an hour and I have three things to do and I get to the place and they're closed on that day for some reason. I I lose it. It ruins my day for no reason. I'll just do it a different day. But I know this about myself now. And so when I feel it start to come on where I'm losing it over something not important in the grand scheme of life, I'm better able to say, okay, this is not going to ruin your day today. We're going to pick a different choice here. Um, How can people do that, whether it's something that they know is going to trigger them or maybe even is there a premortem for general stress where they can find ways to help themselves make a different choice when the natural choice is to lose it? Well, so I, I think part of it is um, is practice. Uh, pilots, uh, peace officers practice, and they do a lot of scenario training. And um, so we can practice mindfulness and calming exercises so that when the moment comes, we, uh, we know how to how to react. And in my whole thing with the pre-mortem is that we can extend that kind of thinking and being into trying to think, well, of all the things that could go wrong, let me, let me spend a little bit of time thinking about what I could do to prevent them from going wrong or prevent a disaster from happening if they do. So, you know, the obvious one in our day and age is um, backing up your data. Your, your heart, look, it's not a question of whether your hard disk is going to fail. It will. <laughs> the only question is when. And when it happens, do you have a backup? Uh, and the story I told in the TED Talk was that um, I panicked because I was late for a flight to Europe. I had locked my uh, keys in the house. And my passport was in the house, and I couldn't get in. And so um, that caused me to – that episode caused me to stop and think, you know, what are the different perils or – Maybe peril's too strong a word, uh, but what are the different things that could upset me that could happen? And what can I do to, you know, with a minimal amount of effort to provide a kind of backup plan, a plan B? And so I got a little lockbox on the side of the house and it holds a key. And I, you know, my wife and I know the code. And if we ever get locked out of the house, there it is. You know, we could forget the code, I guess, except that, you know, between the two of us, we know what it is, and um, you know, there's that. Um, but I do a bunch of other stuff. Um, I, it always bothers me when I run out of toothpaste. You know, I, I, I go in the morning. I go to brush my teeth. There's no toothpaste. Does that bother you? Yeah, of course. So you know, now I buy two two tubes when I go to the store, and I keep one in a backup position. And when the backup is gone, I buy two more. So, you know, when I actually when I when I reach for the backup, when I start using the backup, then I know it's time to buy two more little things like that uh, that that allow me to reduce my levels of irritation in daily life. Well, you don't have to be sort of a brain scientist to understand this stuff, but you're using the tools of neuroscience to understand stuff like spatial memory. So if you are frustrated by losing things to understand that your brain likes things to be in the same place then maybe that forces you to have the discipline to say, I'm only going to put my keys here when I get home. I'm going to take 10 extra steps and put them in this bowl instead of putting them on this countertop where then I'll put them in a pocket and then I'll move them upstairs. Or, or, or as you said, email yourself a picture of IDs that you have. So if something goes terribly wrong traveling, you've emailed it to yourself and you can pull up the information you need. Um, so a lot of it is um, – Sounds like just tips that someone who's like a, a life organizer could tell you, but you're getting to those tips stems from your understanding of how the brain wants to locate information, right? Yeah, that's right. So one of the big principles of how the brain works that you, you mentioned that you brought up just now is um, the brain has really good spatial memory, which harkens back to the London taxi cab drivers and the hippocampus. I mean, it, some people have better spatial memory than others, but there's this whole chunk of real estate in the brain that evolved to keep track of, of where things are, it doesn't do so well if the things are always in a different place, because we evolved in a world where that wasn't usually the case. The well where you got your water is in one place. It's not moving around. And the, the trees that bear fruit in June are in one place, and they're there every year. So, um, yeah, there are these little things that um, I learned from neuroscience and then encoded in the book the organized mind. Um, and, you know, that's one of, of a few dozen different things that 
suggests that, well, you should, rather than fighting against the way the brain evolved, work with it. So like you say, put your keys in a bowl or on a hook by the door, but always put them there. I always used to lose my reading glasses, so now I have a place for them. And they always go there, and I have a place for my wallet, my passport, and they're always there. I'm not fumbling looking for them. Yeah. You know, one of the stories that I read that was so fascinating to me a couple of years ago was a story you did for The Guardian about how technology is changing the way we need to use our brains. And Boy, you've really done your homework. <laughs> I'm really interested in this stuff. You're a very interesting person, too. Um, but I'm, I'm well, intrigued. You don't know me well enough yet. <laughs> well, you're interesting uh, on the Internet. So, you know, that oh, makes you. two of us. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, I, I'm especially interested in how that continues to evolve. So, right, even just a couple years ago, there are even more technological advances that have changed the way we do things. But you point out that there are so many things we now do that used to be reserved for people who that was their job. Travel agents would be in charge of our, you know, reservations. Salespeople would help us in stores. Um, people would help with letter writing when you needed to correspond in business. Instead, we're in charge of our own emails and texts and reservations and everything is just sitting on our phone, which is very useful, but also very difficult for our brains. And I'm fascinated by what you wrote about multitasking because I like to commend myself on my ability to multitask because I have a couple different bosses depending on radio or writing or TV. Um, and I've got, you know, a couple dogs at home and I'm doing X and Y. And you said it's actually very bad for the brain to be constantly multitasking because you're not actually doing everything at once. You're just going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Yeah, this is the work of Earl Miller at MIT who I think you might enjoy talking to if you haven't already. Yeah. Uh, but he's one of the world experts on attention, and, and he says multitasking doesn't really exist. And he's not the only one saying it. And I've read a number of papers that converge on this idea that, um, to use a programming analogy from computer programming, when you engage in any kind of a project, whether it's um, cl clipping your fingernails or... Um, mixing orange juice from a frozen can or talking to somebody on the phone, each of those things opens up a project file in your brain. And you can only attend to one or two project files at once. And although it seems like you're multitasking when you're driving and listening to the radio and talking to the kids in the back seat and looking for a parking place, mm -hmm. all the while trying to avoid pedestrians and other cars, um, you're not really doing all those things at once. Your brain is instead rapidly shifting from one to the next. And it causes a fragmentation of attention and it burns up resources like crazy because all that switching, the switching itself comes at a neurobiological cost. So um, it, it's, it's a myth that we're multitasking. It appears that we are. And it's a particularly insidious myth because when we do it, we feel like we're getting a lot done. We have this subjective feeling that we're really being more productive and efficient than ever before. But as a neuroscientist, I can tell you, uh, one of the brain's favorite pastimes is self-delusion. So <laughs> just because your brain thinks that you're good at something doesn't make you good at it. My brain thinks that I'm really, really funny after I've had a couple of single malt scotches. But other people disagree. <laughs> Well, what's fascinating is the actual, um, you know, statistics associated with it. So, um, you, you, you referenced someone, Glenn Wilson, who found via his research, um, that if you're trying to concentrate on a task and you have an email unread in your inbox that you know about, it can reduce your effective IQ by 10 points. Merely knowing that the email is there and asking you to open it and you haven't yet, you're trying to focus on something else and your brain is telling you because of the way our prefrontal prefrontal cortex wants something new. You talk about the novelty bias, and that's yeah. why we all like to have a new in, a little message in Facebook and Instagram and email and text. Oh my gosh, all these new things. This is so exciting. We can't focus on the other thing we're doing because we're so ready to introduce that new thing. I mean, that plus the idea that when we're multitasking, if you're doing your homework while watching TV, the, the homework you're doing goes to the wrong part of the brain. Can you talk about that? Because that, that alone, that, that sentence led me to rethink many of my multitasking efforts. Yeah, well, um, the, it, it gets to the idea of, of project files and immersion. You know, the, 
to really do a good job at something, you need to be focused on it and not distracted. You need to be engaging in a deep level of processing. Uh, and there's a literature on this in neuroscience on, on levels of processing. If you're dealing with something only superficially, it doesn't make its way into the right part of memory. Um, there are very clever experiments that began in the 70s that look at this. Um, for example, people would be shown lists of words and they'd simply be asked questions like, um, is that word in all capital letters or is it in all lowercase or is it in a mixture of upper and lowercase? Or is that, what color ink was that word in? And when you ask people to recall a word that they've had only this superficial encoding of, they're not really good at recalling the words later when you ask them, you know, what are some of the words I showed you? But if you have them think more deeply about the word, like how would you use it in a sentence? Or if it's a concrete noun, um, make an image of it and, and, you know, how would you grasp it and what kind of motion would you use if it's a hammer versus a screwdriver? That deeper level of processing creates a stronger memory trace. And I'm not just talking about um, words, but about any, you know, that you're trying to memorize, on, you know, a, a list of arbitrary words, anything that you do, whether it's learning a musical instrument, reading the news, um, trying to solve complex differential equations, writing a poem, reading a poem, the more you're immersed in it at a deep level, um, the, the more memorable it is and potentially the more rewarding. It's not the case that you're going to be listening to a stand-up comedy routine out of one ear while right. you're reading the newspaper with another and it's going to really make you lose your, uh, yourself in it and, and come to a great um, laughing payoff. You got to really be there. Yeah, I'm. I'm also interested. In the more studies that we read about how our phones are changing our brains, um, the biggest thing I can think of when I when I want to shake people and and say, "Why aren't we paying attention to this?" is like climate change. Right? That's the big, 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 big thing. Yeah. On a scale of not that big to climate change, how not seriously are we taking what we're doing to our brains with? our obsessions with our phones and touching it 3,000 times a day? Well, you know, people are different, of course. Um, I know people who purposely don't have smartphones. They just use their phones for talking. Are they your age, Daniel? Because there's no one my age that's purposely not having a smartphone. Yeah, they're my age. Yeah, because uh, I, I don't think it'd be possible for someone my age to imagine that. Yeah, uh, I know people who are in their 50s, late 40s and 50s, who have cell phones, smartphones, but they don't really have that many apps on them. They're not that tied to them. Um, but you're right. It's it's a problem for people, say, under 50, and certainly for people under 30, 35. Uh, and it, it, I guess the question is, um, to what extent has it become an addiction? And there's a lot of evidence that for many people, not all, it is an addiction, as you say, checking it, checking it hundreds of times a day. And this gets to that novelty bias you were talking about. The, the brain evolved over tens of thousands of years when the world just didn't change that much. You know, I mean, we, we discovered fire and then, you know, I don't know, 10, 20,000 years go by and we discover the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> That's the next big event. <laughs> right. Or, um, you know, you know, you could go 10 or 15 years just hanging out with the same group of 30 people in your tribe. And, and you know, there's a few births and a few deaths, but things don't change that quickly. Uh, and, you know, there's the seasons, but the seasons have a sort of repetitive uh, familiarity to them. Novelty back then when our brains were evolving would have been something like discovering a new source of food. Right. You're out hunting and you follow the gazelle and you end up finding a new well. That's novel. Um, a new way to kill a gazelle, whatever it is. These are things that you wanted your brain to keep track of. And so we evolved this reward circuit that in, entails dopamine that gives us a feeling of pleasure when we discover something new. The problem is that other things can hijack that circuit, such as... Um, porn and sex and drugs and the internet. 
anything that provides you with a bunch of new stuff all the time is hijacking a circuit that was intended for something else. Now, we hijack circuits all the time. When we eat sugary treats like pie and cake, we're hijacking a circuit that uh, was intended to help us um, show a preference for sugar because sugars weren't very plentiful in our um, hunter-gatherer days, not, not refined sugars. And so you couldn't really make yourself diabetic eating sugar, and it was a fast and quick source of energy. Um, but, you know, sugar addiction is different than, say, heroin addiction or Internet addiction in that it's, it's, it's relative, compared to those, it's benign. Um, heroin's activating the same circuit of addiction that, um, that the Internet uh, addiction is. The, the constant seeking of some new piece of information, some um, new thumbs up, uh, who, who just liked my post? Right. Um, what's happening in the news that I might have missed in the last five minutes? And is it something that people are going to be talking about? And do I want to engage in the conversation? Um, what are my friends doing right this minute? There was a study done in the 1950s by my colleague Peter Milner, who passed away last year at McGill University, where he implanted a tiny little filament in the in a particular part of a rat's brain that was associated with this reward circuit. And what we already knew at that point, what Peter Milner and others knew, was that um, if rats were hungry and you gave them food, or if they were randy and you gave them a sex partner, that part of the brain, it's called the nucleus accumbens, would become activated and it would release dopamine. And he applied the tiniest little electrical pulse to that part of the brain um, every time the rats pressed a bar in their cage. So it's now under the rat's control. The rat presses a bar, they get this little electrical charge in the nucleus accumbens, and it releases a little bit of dopamine. And they still can drink their water and, and run on their treadmill, and they've got their food, and they've got attractive rat mates in the cage. <laughs> but once the rats had this way to short-circuit the system with the bar, they just press the bar over and over again, each time getting a hit of dopamine, and they pressed it over and over again until they died. Hmm. And every time I see somebody compulsively checking their Facebook feed or their email, clicking the button, it reminds me of that experiment. So, I mean, we, none of us wants to be the rat just pressing the lever over and over again until we die. And none of us wants to imagine that we are as simplistic as a rat, right? We have a choice in this. But how do you circumvent the part of your brain that very naturally wants this thing? I mean, with, with sugar or with food, there's a discipline that we've kind of grown to understand. I think those of us who grew up before smartphones at least understand we didn't used to be like this, right? But especially young people, there is no understanding of what life is like without this constant pleasure center in your hand. How do you choose... Or how do you make your brain not validate that over more meaningful and healthy pursuits? Well, you know, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, you're not going to get there's there's no 20 year old there's nobody 20 or under who's going to who's going to think it's a problem because everybody's doing it. Right. And that's the only world they know. Um, the, you know, you might be able to get people who are who are older and who are more. Um, into personal growth and things like that, you, you might get you might get a few few people out of a thousand to want to change. But I I don't know uh, how how things are going to play out. Would you say I, it's unhealthy if it's a natural reaction from our brain, or are there plenty of unhealthy natural reactions from our brain? What do you mean? In terms of well, if your brain is telling you it wants this thing, why can't you just give it to it, even if it ends up, you know, distracting you or taking you away from other things. Are there well, plenty of ways that our brain heroin. tricks us? Right. I mean, I guess you're right. Heroin is a good example. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't work with cocaine and it doesn't right. work with alcohol. And there yeah. are people like uh, um, there are people who have sex addictions. Right. So our brain um, is not foolproof. We can't always trust it. Right. Uh, and the question is, 
you know, are we creating an entire generation of people with short little attention spans? Mm. And what does that mean? Right. It, it, I think, you know, taking climate change as a problem, um, solving climate change at, uh, uh, at the level of meteorology, uh, at, the, at the level of what, what, what can we do? Meteorology isn't the word I mean. Uh, there are two things that have to happen. There, there's scientific stuff. Uh, we need to come up with alternative sources of energy that are plentiful and cheap. And then there's social stuff. We have to convince people, especially in leadership positions, that it's real. So figuring that out, I think, is going to take the work of a lot of people who are very smart and very focused. And I don't think we're going to solve climate change by a bunch of people who think about it for five seconds and then go check their cell phones and then think about it for another five seconds. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think we're going to get a Sistine Chapel again from <laughs> right. you know somebody yeah. who's who's spending five seconds at a time on it. But we will get some really cool new dating apps that are totally yes, different well, than the yeah. ones that exist. Um, it was so great talking to you. I'm definitely going to have you back on to talk about the music stuff because I'm really interested in the way um, our brains react to and some of your studies on how uh, music is actually very differently embedded in our brains than we might understand. So. Um, I could go on forever, but I, I'm sure you have neuroscientist things to do. So, um, <laughs> right, I have to walk the dog. That's right. There you go. Uh, thank you so much, Daniel. Really great talking to you. Thanks for having me. I look forward to the next time. Oh, and another thing. This week's That's What She Read is actually a, a story that he wrote, Daniel Levitin, that I addressed in the, uh, in the interview. You can find it yourself. Uh, it's a fascinating read about why the modern world is bad for your brain. It's from way back in 2015. A lot has changed since then, but you'd be surprised how much remains the same, and it's worth reading. It's called Why the Modern World is Bad for Your Brain, TheGuardian.com by Daniel Levitin. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.